Hi, this is Pastor Brittany Isaac from Urban Village Church, Chicago. We are a church that is bold, inclusive, and relevant. I know that many of you out there are hungry for a gospel message of healing and wholeness, a message that leads to a life transformed by Christ. I hope that this podcast does just that. And if it does, would you please consider making a financial gift that will support this gospel-inclusive ministry? You can do that by going to urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks so much and have a blessed day. Our scripture today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him, and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. The word of God for the people of God. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Um, my name is Gloria Feliciano Feltman, um, and I am a member here at UBC Edgewater, and I'm sure some of you are like, really? Because I haven't been around. Um, I, during the school year, I work at another church. I work at First UMC in Evanston, so um, in the summer, I get to come home to all of you, so it's always a glorious homecoming for me to be here with you. Um, And it is a joy to get to preach here um, in Brittany's stead while she rests from her red-eye flight home. So, um, 
As a child, like many children, I went to daycare. My daycare was run out of the home of a lovely Guatemalan woman that I lovingly called Mama Chela, uh, which is the Guatemalan term for grandmother. And at daycare, I had a best friend, as kids are wont to do. Her name was Rebecca, and she and I played together every day, and I'm sure I was very fond of her. Um, I say sure because I need to be honest with all of you. The only thing I can remember about Rebecca is that she scratched me. Um, She scratched the back of my left hand, and I was wearing one of my favorite outfits when she scratched me. It was a jumper, and there was a turtleneck with green and purple stripes and matching striped tights. The jumper was purple, and it had pockets. And we all know how important the pockets are, right? (laughs) Um, So after that moment, whenever I wore that outfit, I would put my left hand in my pocket and say, Rebecca scratched me. Or, as my mom will um, be quick to tell you, it was her scratched me. We all know who the her was. It was Rebecca. (laughs) Um, And I would refuse to take my hand out of the pocket. So, as a child, I was very aware of the unjust nature of her actions and could not and would not let it go. I could never really wear that outfit again. And as much as it pains me to admit it, I have a tendency to fall into this habit of remembering the way people have wronged me, especially at points when I am really stressed out. This story from my childhood gives you a little insight to who I am as a person and where my faults lie. There are other ways you can seemingly try to get to know me. You can ask me my personality type from Myers-Briggs, ESFJ for the curious among you. Um, You can ask me the results of my strength finders, context, learner, input, intellection, and discipline. The list could go on. I could tell you the responses to my BuzzFeed quizzes and all that stuff. But you don't really get a feel for my personality in the same way you do when you hear the story I just told. Besides a personal story that shows me not at my best, a way for you to understand my personality would be through the Enneagram and knowing what personality type I am. For those of you not familiar with the Enneagram, we're going to be exploring it for the next three weeks in worship and over the summer in our One Book, One Church conversations and in that retreat at the end of the summer that Lynette mentioned. So before we jump into our scripture for today, I'd like to give you a background on the Enneagram and a brief overview of how it works. The majority of the information I'll be sharing uh, is found in two books. The first is The Enneagram, A Christian Perspective by Richard Rohr and Andreas Ebert. And the other is The Road Back to You, An Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery by Ian Morgan Crone and Susan Stable. And that's the book we're going to be reading this summer across all our sites. The history of the Enneagram is a murky one. If you Google it, you'll get results for two men named Oscar Ichazo and Claudio Naranjo, 
They both did teach the Enneagram, but this was in the 1970s, and the Enneagram is ancient. Rohr and Ebert give pretty good depth on the mythology behind the Enneagram. It goes back millennia to the ancient Near East where it has been passed down through religions. Some trace it to a monk named Evagrius uh, um, who connected it to the seven deadly sins, others to the desert mothers and fathers in the fourth century. It appears in Sufism, which is the mystical tradition within Islam. It also appears in Judaism. As I said earlier, Oscar Ichazo and Claudio Naranjo happened on the Enneagram in the 1970s and made significant contributions to the Enneagram by adding insights from modern psychology. And then once it was brought to the West by Naranjo, a very white-centered understanding and teaching of the Enneagram became prominent. So with this little bit of backstory, I'm sure some of you are still wondering, what is the Enneagram? I've got a visual for us that's going to get pulled up on the screen. There it is. Um, Enneagram comes from two Greek words, one for nine, ennea, and the other for drawing or figure, gram. It is a nine-pointed geometric figure. It illustrates and provides language for nine different personality types, nine different ways to live life, nine lenses for how we experience and view our world. You may be sitting there thinking, really? Only nine types of people in the world? While there are only nine types, there are infinite ways to express these types. We are talking in watercolors here. Not every seven is alike. There are many shades and viscosities. There are a couple of different ways you can figure out what number or type you are within the Enneagram. You can take a quiz online. Uh, I had to take one as part of a class in seminary. There's also an app you can download called the Ennea app that has a quiz. Uh, the other way is to read about the different types and see which type you gravitate towards. In all honesty, your type is the one that makes you squirm. The other night, my, one of my roommates was trying to determine what number he is and took a test which gave him two very different answers. And so as we read through the descriptions of each type, it became very apparent which type he was when his eyes got really wide and he looked really uncomfortable. <laughs> Richard Rohr says, the rule of thumb is, if you don't sense the whole thing as somehow humiliating, you haven't yet found your number. <laughs> The more humiliating it is, the more you are looking the matter right in the eye. It's hard to think that anything would have made John the Baptist feel humiliated. From our scripture passage today, we get a distinct vision of who he was and how he behaved. I don't know if any of you have seen the musical Godspell, but in that piece, oftentimes John is portrayed as this magnanimous personality that just fills the space. 
Godspell is based on the book of Matthew, so whenever I read a scripture passage from Matthew, I get flashes of the productions I've seen. <laughs> Both in Godspell and the book of Matthew, John's passion is palpable. He's set apart from elegant society, living in the wilderness, wearing um, clothing made from camel's hair and eating locusts with wild honey. Um, perhaps he like dipped it in the honey and ate them. I don't know. Um, he appears almost as a symbol for this renewal that is coming about because of Jesus. John appears rather abruptly in Matthew, and this is a theological design by the writer of this gospel. M. Eugene Boring says, The action of God in history is often sudden, unexpected, and to our eyes even intrusive. The will of God cannot be equated with group progress, human growth, or social development arising naturally out of the human possibility. God's will does not always work gently. John knows this and owns it in his prophetic warnings. John himself is a, is a claim that God's way with the world is often strange, unforeseen, and unpredictable. Boring goes on to say that John is a call to worship in the flesh. If we were to guess what type or number John is on the Enneagram, based on what we know about him, I think it would be safe to say that John is an eight. The nine numbers of the Enneagram are divided up into three triads. Each, are, they're divided by threes into triads. Can we pull it back up really quickly? So, um, you have... The heart or feeling triad, which is made up of two, three, and four. And then you have the, um, the head or fear triad, which is five, six, and seven. And then you have the anger or gut triad, which is eight, nine, and one. Each triad is driven in a different way by an emotion related to a part of the body known as a center of intelligence. Triads are essentially another way of describing how we habitually take in, process, and respond to life. Are we surprised that John falls into the anger triad? <laughs> Just look at what he says in verses 7 through 10. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into fire. Eights externalize their anger, if that wasn't obvious. <laughs> um, and all the numbers in this triad respond to life instinctually at a gut level. They're honest and direct, and confrontation for the majority of these folks is not a negative thing. I say majority because nines actually want to avoid the conflict. Um, 
eights are fiercely independent, whose strong oppositional energy expresses itself in a need to go up against power. They care deeply about justice and fairness. They are fierce advocates. I would want an eight on my side in the fight for justice. Eights have a commanding talk style. They get their energy from conflict. Their defining characteristic is this overabundance of intense energy wherever they go. Why do we need to know all of this? Why is the Enneagram, as opposed to the other tools like Myers-Briggs or Strength Finders, the tool that so many religions have latched onto? The Enneagram can help us distill our self-perception so that we can become brutally honest with ourselves and discern when we are hearing only our inner voices and when we are open to something new. The Enneagram helps us begin to understand our default behaviors, which aren't necessarily the best way to go about our lives. It shines a light on our shadow side and provides a way for us to open up to the transformation that grace brings forth. The business of change is hard work. There is nothing that people are more fixated on than their self-image. Rohr says that sin can be understood as fixations that do not allow God's love to freely flow. They are blockades that cut us off from God and from our own authentic potential. Each number in the Enneagram is associated with a sin. It is through our sin and our default behavior that we are able to understand our driving force. When we give in to our favorite sin, we are fully present. It's hard to give up this sin because it is literally the way we order our life. It is a survival strategy that is ingrained in us when we are children. We keep going back to it because it's where we feel at home. For example, I'm a one uh, on the Enneagram. I'm in the anger gut triad. um, And I express my anger very differently than John the Baptist. Ones are internal anger people. We're mad at ourselves. Uh, so I, I'll just give you one example. I love and yet really despise cleaning and organizing my kitchen. Um, it's my need to control and perfect it that brings out some of the best and the very worst in me. Sins are a way for us to cope with or enhance our life. Sins are this like pretty package. It's a false package, though. It's a promise. It promises us something that we cannot attain through it. Sins cut us off from God, from other human beings, and from ourselves. Just look at John the Baptist. He's sequestered off in the wilderness. 
The sin of eights is lust, this lust for intensity. John had this very clear image of the coming Messiah, one who is more powerful than I am, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning off the chafe with unquenchable fire. That's what it says in verses 11 and 12. (laughs) As flawed human beings, we tend to picture God in our own image. And John has done just that in this instance. Yet, in the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus does not conform to what John's expectations of the Messiah were. Jesus is the forgiving, accepting, non-retaliatory, suffering servant king whose strength lies in his meekness. This encounter with John is the first time Jesus speaks in the book of Matthew. He authoritatively takes charge of his own baptism. Jesus engages John in an argument which as an eight, would have thrilled John. Eights want people to challenge them right back. John would have been able to recognize the strength that Jesus put forth, even if it wasn't initially what he expected it to appear like. It is through an encounter with God incarnate, Jesus Christ, that John is able to let go of his need to control. Eights, when they are in a place of security, start to trust in something bigger than themselves. We are able to witness this transformation within this scripture passage. Only through our encounters with the divine are we able to change. When we deal with the great love that comes from God, then we have to change. It is through God's grace that we are able to recognize the patterns that we keep repeating within life and break free from them. These patterns are limiting the possibility of love. The only way we can fully open ourselves to God's transformative love is being willing to look at our sin for what it is, recognize it, and let it go. Just as Jesus met John the Baptist out in the desert wearing his camel hair clothes, Jesus meets us right where we are. It doesn't matter where we are in the process of naming our sin. It doesn't matter if we know what number we are on the Enneagram. (laughs) Jesus is always reaching out to us, wanting to envelop us in endless love. When we are open to receiving this grace from Jesus, we are able to grow deeper in love with ourselves, with humanity, and with God. I truly believe 
that God made each and every one of us in God's image and called that good. But we are born into a world that is overrun with sin. And we had to find ways to cope. And in that search, we turned inwards, relying on ourselves instead of God. The Enneagram is a tool that helps us understand these default behaviors and allows us to be able to look objectively at ourselves, our behavior. It opens us up to a space for us to question ourselves in a healthy manner. On another level, it helps us to recognize what motivates other people and what their default behaviors are. The grace of God is working on us to step out and beyond our own number within the Enneagram and move closer to the center of that circle. God restores us to wholeness. God is working through us to bring all of creation back to what was good. As Richard Rohr wrote, redemption is the work of God's grace, which takes place without our doing anything when we let go and expose ourselves to a greater reality, when we let ourselves fall into the center into God. And when we have done that, we will notice that even the letting go and opening of ourselves was not our achievement. The credit has to go to God for wooing our love. Sometimes it can be scary to dig deep into who we are. It is fear that drives us deeper and deeper into restrictive, painful ego states and away from a direct experience of our true nature, according to the Enneagram Institute. Remember that no matter how deep you dive into that restrictive ego state, Jesus is there with you. Jesus is always going to challenge John the Baptist. Jesus is always going to meet you just as you need, no matter what type or number you are. We just have to be able to open ourselves up to it and accept the fact that God will never give up on us. Will you pray with me? Loving Creator God, who made each of us in our own image and knows our true nature just as we are. Thank you for bringing us together today, and thank you for the gift of getting to know ourselves and the gift of your endless love that is always poured out on us. We know that you are waiting for us with open arms, and we cannot wait to fall into endless love with you. Amen.